This podcast is made possible by listeners just like you. For details on our membership program, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, The Daily Show, The Young Turks, Tom Hartman, Real Time with Bill Maher, and Citizen Radio from wearecitizenradio.com. My message to leaders of the financial industry is to work with us and not against us on needed reforms. I welcome constructive input from folks in the financial sector, but what we've seen so far in recent weeks is an army of industry lobbyists from Wall Street descending on Capitol Hill to try and block basic and common sense rules of the road that would protect our economy and the American people. So if these folks want a fight, it's a fight I'm ready to have. President Obama proposing aggressive measures to limit how big banks can get and what they can do with your money. Issuing a forceful challenge to the banks themselves, either get on board or prepare for a political battle. Of course, the president issued that challenge to the financial industry within about 90 minutes of news that the Supreme Court had handed business, including, of course, the very rich banking industry, more political power than they've had in, say, a century. The White House responded directly to news of the high court's ruling by calling it a green light to a new stampede of special interest money in our politics. It's a major victory for big oil, Wall Street banks, health insurance companies, and the other powerful interests that marshal their power every day in Washington to drown out the voices of everyday Americans. We are going to talk with bipartisan congressional leaders to develop a forceful response to this decision. What that response might entail remains to be seen. We just heard uh, Barney Frank from the Banking Committee in the House say that maybe some changes could be made in corporate law to try to get back some of the ground that was ceded to the Supreme Court today. What also remains to be seen is how the president will get new financial reform through Congress now that the Supreme Court has told the financial industry that it's cool if they want to just sort of buy Congress. Joining us now is Elizabeth Warren, Harvard Law Professor and Chair of the Congressional Oversight Panel for the TARP Bailout Funds. Uh, Professor Warren, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. I've um, read that you met with David Axelrod and Valerie Jarrett yesterday before this announcement uh, today. What, what exactly is the president proposing and how important do you think it is? Well, it's really important. Let's let's put a little context around what today's announcement was about. Remember, October 2008, uh, Secretary of the Treasury Paulson comes in and says, in effect, uh, the economy's about to crash. Give me $700 billion or it won't be here next Monday. And so the American people did. They put up the money. And now here we are. We've bailed them out. The big financial institutions are back on their feet. The bonuses are back. They've paid the money back. Some of them. Uh, the rest of them are beginning to, and we're winding out of TARP. But what will remain after the last dollar is paid and the last uh, formal guarantee has been canceled is the reminder that, you know, when it comes right down to it with these very large financial institutions, we will throw as many taxpayers under the bus as it takes to save them. That's known as the implicit guarantee or too big to fail. And so what President Obama was talking about today is he said, we just can't do that anymore. What we're going to have to do on a going forward basis is we're going to have to break apart financial institutions that would otherwise be too big to fail. And we're going to have to say for those that take deposits, the ones we're really going to have to guarantee, they can't engage in high-risk trading. We've got to dial that back out of the system because without that, quite frankly, our economy just can't function. Those big banks really will own all of us. 
the reforms that were on the table before this announcement today were already under assault. I mean, not only by Republicans in Congress, and uh, but by the financial industry. I mean, tens of millions of dollars spent lobbying against even the existing proposed regulations before these tough new ones announced today. Uh, the creation of consumer protection agency, something you've been a key advocate for, has been a particular target. Uh, the White House now saying that agency is non-negotiable. How are you feeling about the politics here? Obviously, it seems like you've got more support, overt support from the White House than you had in the past. You know, I always say about politics, remember, I'm a teacher. I'm not a politician, and I don't always understand what goes on in Washington. But I feel better than I felt in a long time. Because what I heard the president saying on the Consumer Financial Protection Agency is it's not going down. I'm. I'm here, I'm not giving up on it. There is not gonna be a compromise to cave in on it. I heard him say we're gonna tax those large financial institutions and we're gonna make them pay back all of the money under TARP. And then today I heard him say, we're gonna break apart, too big to fail, and we're gonna have an answer so that every financial institution, if it makes big enough mistakes, if it takes big enough risks and loses, every one of them can in the end die. And what I hear in that is that, uh, you know, the financial institutions have pushed him hard, they've pushed Congress hard, he's pushing right back. In terms of those specific changes that you just described, and we've all been reporting on this and hearing about it for so long that I think everybody understands those changes, even if we didn't think of ourselves as financially savvy people a year ago. How can all those changes be made? Are those all made through legislation? Do they all get made at once? Does it have to happen piecemeal? Are some of them regulatory or administrative changes? How fast can this be done? I'm asking because I'm trying to figure out how possible it is in this political environment. Right. You know, I, I, the way I understand this is, look, it took 30 years to get us into this hole. Uh, think about consumer finance by itself. Basically what happened was that the big banks started in in the early 1980s and they captured the regulatory agencies that were supposed to be the cops on the beat. They then poured money into Washington to make sure that no one put any new cops on the beat. And then they started selling deceptive products all over the country. Uh, as we all know, that then brought down a lot of households and ultimately brought down the entire economy. They demanded a bailout and got it. And where we really are is in the last chapter of that story and basically the next chapter of, of, of our the rest of our lives. And that is, are the banks really in control here or are we gonna be able to do something for the people? And what I see is that the president is now going to go straight to the people. And he's not going to let deals be cut in the back room. He's not going to, you know, take people off the hook so there are no hard votes. You know, the time is upon us. Either you vote for the banks and you do it in a big public way, or you vote for the people. And we'll have it. We'll, we'll count up at the end of the day where that puts everyone in Washington. And boy, does he need this kind of political win right now. Uh, if he can pull it out, and even if he can't pull it out, boy, does he need to look like he's having this kind of political fight right now. I can tell you that from here.
Street Journal. His new book is called The Quants, How a New Breed of Math Wizards Conquered Wall Street and Nearly Destroyed It. Please welcome to the show, Scott Patterson. Sir! Quants. The book is called The Quants. Who, who are these cats? These are mathematicians, physicists, super geniuses, like you said, who have figured out using their math skills and computer skills ways to price securities on the stock market, make big bets, and uh, unfortunately, frequently cause big blowups. So the idea that, that generally the, the, a stock's price would be reflective of a value created by what the company makes, uh, they looked at that and thought, that's a sucker bet. Right. Let me create an equation that has no real bearing in that. It's what they're looking at are historical returns and plugging that into a computer and saying, based on what this has done, this is what it's going to do tomorrow, next year, a few years from now. And they're also using it to make derivatives, credit fault swaps, these toxic securities that we've heard they're a lot making, about. They're making products out of stocks. Like, for instance, if there's a stocks, stock from a company, right. they would take that stock and say, let me make that a stock daiquiri of some sort right. and just blend it together with other ingredients and then right. make people drink it. <laughs> Do they share these uh, profits with regular people or is it only amongst quants? Uh, well, all of Wall Street is controlled by quants, in my opinion, I think. <laughs> so, so everything that people invest in, uh, hedge funds, hedge funds have pension fund money in them, so the money is being spread around. But, uh, you know, I think that what people don't understand is that the, this started decades ago, mm -hmm. and all of these guys are, they completely revolutionized the way Wall Street works, right. using the, their skills. You, you would not believe how many physicists are at these banks and hedge funds. Now, doesn't so, it seem like they are running an express lane? That there's, there's a Wall Street that is for general traffic, and then there is this express lane where these guys are making billions and billions and billions of dollars and, and kind of capitalizing gains, and then when hits the fan, for lack of a better word, socializing their losses amongst the slower lanes. That's, that's what happened on Wall Street, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that the, doesn't the bank, seem fair. The, <laughs> the, the banks, uh, you know, they, they're, they're run by these guys, and they, you know, they realize that uh, because Wall Street was supported by Washington, D.C., or implicitly supported by Washington, D.C., they could make bigger bets. And using these quantitative strategies, which are, they hedge, they, uh, they allow them to make bigger bets. And just complex they, algorithms and things right, of that nature. Right, they thought that they could make bigger bets, and they, they proved to be wrong. Right. True. Here's my favorite thing uh, that they did, is the quants came up with, and I'm trying to see if I can find it, a Hippocratic Oath. Uh, right. <laughs> okay, after they, they started losing a lot of money in 2007 and 2008, mm -hmm. when apparently, the stock market began not to defy the laws of gravity. Um, so here's the Hippocratic Oath of the Quants. I will remember that I didn't make the world and it doesn't satisfy my equations. Right. How does they that, have not, to be how told does that, that not get you fired? How does that? That goes to the hubris of these guys. They, they 
are running so much money. I mean, think about it. You're you're controlling billions of dollars. You're becoming extremely rich. Right. And it's you know. The, these guys are very arrogant because of their, their intelligence and their wealth. Have they been humbled in any way by what appears to be a worldwide collapse of their strategy? Uh, you know, I thought they would be, to be honest, after this happened and I, and I was writing this book, but I... And they spoke, with you, they spoke with you for the book while they were winning. Right. And then when it went bad, they They stopped. suddenly didn't want to talk so much anymore. Right. Um, and from what I hear, because these guys don't really talk to me very much anymore, mm -hmm. uh, they, they blame other people. And this is endemic of all of Wall Street. Nobody really wants to take the blame because this thing was so vast and global, really, that everybody can point the finger at somebody else. And nobody wants to take responsibility. It seems like a lot of what these guys did was use these mathematical analyses and equations to circumvent the intent of securities law while still obeying the letter of those laws or acting in areas that were unregulated completely. Right. That, that is definitely one component of what they do in the derivatives world. Right. These swaps, uh, they're basically designed to... Uh, get around regulations right. and, and, you know, save a company money and, and move it over to Greece. Uh, <laughs> and collapse their and, economy. Right. Um, <laughs> they have not been purged. They are, they are back running Wall Street and they now do business in what they themselves call... High-frequency trading. In dark pools. Oh, in dark pools, yeah. yeah. High-frequency high trading in dark pools. The combination is kind of scary. Yeah. What's uh, a dark pool? Yeah. A dark pool is this uh, off-exchange market where stocks trade in the dark. Uh, regulators don't really know what's going on them in, in these dark pools, uh, and the high-frequency trading guys are getting in them too. So it's, 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 the book is unbelievable, and it talks about the real personalities, and it is. It, it shows that our money in pension funds is literally being handled by the same people who are like trafficking in stolen amputated gorilla paws like <laughs> it's it's insanity and and I, insane. I really hope that the book exposes a, a great deal of it and and that they I'm sure figure out an equation to make you disappear somehow I, I think they're working on that yeah I'm sure well it's it's phenomenal and I look forward to seeing the movie of it my love is like a Cuban plane my love like a Cuban plane flying from Havana up the Florida coast to the glades Soviet made John Boehner of the Republicans' outreach to Wall Street. Now, that seems to be a curious time to reach out to Wall Street, uh, but for the Republicans, it's not. It's very logical. Uh, this is the time to cash in. And John Boehner has gotten himself in a little bit of trouble here by being very explicit about that. In the article, in fact, let me quote the article for you. Mr. Boehner told Mr. Diamond, the head of J.P. Morgan, uh, congressional Republicans had stood up to Mr. Obama's efforts to curb pay and impose new regulations. Boehner saying, look, we were on your side. We tried to make sure you got all your pay on Wall Street and that you had no new regulations to deal with. 
And then he continues, the Republican leader also said he was disappointed many on Wall Street continued to donate money to Democrats, according to people familiar with the matter. That's the Wall Street Journal on that issue. Now, Eric Cantor is also quoted here. He's, of course, the second-ranking House Republican and the top Wall Street fundraiser for his party. And he said, quote, I sense a lot of dissatisfaction and a lot of buyer's remorse on Wall Street, referring to how Wall Street gave more money to Democrats in the last election cycle. And he's saying, see, now they're trying to hold you accountable. And you know you can always count on the Republican Party to never hold you accountable, to make sure we got your back. And look, Boehner and Cantor's requests are perfectly legitimate. If you're a Wall Street banker and you want to protect your pay and you want to be able to take as much risk as you like and you want to get bailed out by the taxpayer, well, the Republican Party is definitely your party. Remember, Bush is the one that did the bailout. The guy who was the architect of the whole bailout was Hank Polson, the Treasury Secretary for Bush. And he's the former Goldman Sachs CEO that funneled all the money to Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan and all those companies. So if you're a Wall Street banker, you got to love the Republicans. They're your boys. I'm surprised they donated all to the Democrats, but they do. And to be fair, in 2008, Wall Street executives, well, more specifically, securities and investment industry executives, gave Obama $15 million, and they only gave McCain $8.7 million. I think a lot of them were in the same place we all were. Enough. The Republicans are destroying the economy, even if it means we're going to, you know, get a little tighter regulation from the Democrats, et cetera. Well, better that that happens than these Republicans drive us off a cliff. Now, having said that, now the Democrats are in charge. Even their tiny little bit of regulation, which isn't very much at all, is apparently way too much for Wall Street. It's under their skin. So now, again, the Wall Street Journal reporting that through the third quarter, Campaign finance reports show that some major Wall Street players have begun to increase their share of donations to the Republican Party, including Bank of America, which used to give a little bit more to the Democrats, is now giving a little bit more to the Republicans. And on, on, on and on it goes. And Senator Phil Graham is also quoted. He's the main architect of that Republicans ma making sure to sell out to the bankers to collect their paychecks and then going to work for the bankers once he retires, which is exactly what he did. And we've told you on the show before about how his uh, wife got rich off of that, he got rich off of that. The companies he advocated for through the deregulation wound up actually losing billions of dollars. But it didn't really matter to the Grams because they collected their paychecks and went home. In fact, Bill Graham is still uh, with the investment firm of UBS Securities, LLC, and he's still collecting paychecks for driving companies into the ground and deregulating, et cetera. So the Republican Party is back and advertising and saying, hey, Wall Street, we're on your side. Now, that's a great development if you're a Democrat, because that's terrible politics. But, of course, the Democratic Party never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity. So Democrats are in the press today saying, not all of them, but some of them saying, no, 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 we can serve Wall Street even better than the Republicans. What are you doing? Well, that's the problem. They're right. They're both competing over who can pleasure Wall Street more. So here's Henry Waxman, who I like in other instances. But he said, one, he makes a case uh, in Huffington posted these interviews um, during the bailout debate that he uh, called Diamond personally and that Diamond, uh, the head of J.P. Morgan, quote, impressed upon me how much he needed. 
So Waxman is basically saying, well, I didn't want up Boehner. I called Diamond and asked him, what, I got a blank check. How much you want me to put on it during the bailout? That's disastrous. Why did you admit that? Well, I'm glad you admitted it, because if that's what you're doing, that's terrible. And he said, we also did the stimulus that wind up helping Wall Street. Frank Lautenberg, a Democrat of New Jersey, uh, says that uh, when asked, if, is it politically perilous to be seen on the side of Wall Street? He says, I don't think so. I think that unless there's some really egregious behavior, I think that they should support us, and I think we should be willing to accept their help. In other words, we're open for business. Give us the money. Don't give it to the Republicans. And who cares if we look like we're serving your interests? We all serve your interests. I mean, this is brazen. This is the politicians on both sides saying, we don't give a damn what you think, the, the American people. Look, you got to understand, the way we win elections is by collecting campaign money from rich donors. And Wall Street's got a lot of rich donors. We're open for business, and we're having an auction here to see who's going to be the highest bidder. And if they give us more money, we'll sell it to them. If they give them more money, we'll sell it. The reality is, they both, they, both sides are going to get money. Bank of America used to give 56% to Democrats. Now they're getting 54% to the Republicans, or vice versa, right? They're giving to both sides, and that's why both sides are giving them whatever the hell they want. Guess who's not getting anything out of this deal? Yeah, you, you guessed it, me and you. American taxpayers. They're not open to business for us. It goes on and on. Representative Mel Watt, Democrat of North Carolina, chairman of the Financial Services Subcommittee, might be rather relevant, told Huffington Post there's, quote, no Republican or Democrat slant to Wall Street issues. You're 100% right, Mel. You're both giving into them. You know, you see this stuff, and it, it gives you almost no hope. Now, I, I'll be... A little fair by uh, quoting Barney Frank, who's, you know, been fighting for financial reform in some of those regulations, in my opinion, are far too weak, but at least he's doing something. And at least he's smart enough to realize that Boehner made a huge mistake, and the Democrats should be happy about that, and not going to the press and telling them, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll do even better. Uh, he said about Boehner's comments, can I help him say that? Can I buy him some national TV time to say that? I'm surprised that John thinks that's a good message, but he's free to make it. Frankly, I'm glad that he's being that honest. Yeah, you're right. Well, but you should check your fellow congressmen and senators. Here's a trick that the Democrats do in the banking committee. Obviously, most important committee in this regard in the House. They stack it with a lot of the uh, Democrats who are in close races. Now, what, what's the implication of that? Well, those people in close races are in districts that are more conservative, supposedly, right? And in a lot of cases, yes, they are more conservative. Their districts are. And since they're in tight races, they're going to need more money. So they put them on the banking committee. They put 15 of them in. So the banking committee no longer is progressive. Even though it's controlled by Democrats, it's not conservative. Because those 15 wind up voting with the banks. Why? One, they can go back home and go, oh, see, I'm conservative. I voted with the banks, which is so crazy. But nobody challenges them on that. But number two, they go back to the banks and go, hey, look, this is the most important committee, and I sold that to you big time. Where's my paycheck? So that way, guess what? No strong financial reform coming out of the banking committee because the Republicans and the conservative Democrats working hand in hand and Democratic leadership putting those Democrats in that committee to be able to do just that. And in the end, of course, they continue to have no regulation. They're 
I'm going to run amok again, and it's going to blow up on us. Hi, everyone. Now, running this podcast is an absolute passion of mine that I've been pursuing for years. But, of course, everyone understands that it takes a little bit of money to get along in this world, and that's where the members come in. Members sign up and donate as little as $5 a month, which allows me to pump out 10 episodes per month now. So while you're thinking about that and rationalizing that little expense, just realize it breaks down to only 50 cents per episode, and it's even less if you sign up for a full year. And beyond that, in return, you get access to a set of members-only raw feeds, and these deliver audio plus video clips from the show, as well as a separate feed just for bonus content that would otherwise end up on the cutting room floor. So for details, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks for your support. Couldn't happen to a nicer company. I, you know, it's just, I, I am, uh, as I've, as I've said many, many, many times, we need a, a national and an industrial trade policy in the United States. That's what built Toyota in Japan, and allowed them to become such a powerhouse that they have become one of the leading manufacturers in the United States. And the fact that the fact that they're doing that, Japan is, the country is, and has ever since the early 1950s. And we have not, at least we haven't since the 1980s. And this was yesterday, Arlen Specter asking the president about this. So, you know, do you think that we should continue? He says 15, 15 members of the Democratic caucus voted against NAFTA, or against uh, NAFTA, the World Trade Organization, the, the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades that, that uh, Bill Clinton was pushing in uh, 93, I think it was, or 94, whenever it was, in the early 90s. And he says, you know, 15 of us voted against this thing. And Obama says, well, I'm still, uh, these are, I'm paraphrasing, these are my words, not his, but this is the essence of what he said. He said, I'm still in favor, that he was still in favor of Bill Clinton's policies, which, by the way, were also George Herbert Walker Bush's policies, and also Ronald Reagan's policies, and also George W. Bush's policies, and also Rahm Emanuel's policies, and also the policies of any Democrat or any Republican who has, a, by and large, sold out to the interests of the large transnational corporations, because, tragically, in the United States, we have a political system that only works works. Well, it doesn't work. And that the only way politicians can get reelected, unless they happen to have the good luck of coming from a small enough state like Bernie Sanders does in Vermont, where he can actually do retail politics and through the course of a year pretty much meet everybody in the state and shake their hand and get to know them. And with the exception of those few cases, most, most of these, you know, I mean, Barbara Boxer's from a state that's, you know, if it was a country, we'd have the sixth largest economy in the world, or at least would have a few years ago. I think things may have changed a little bit recently, but you get the point that if politicians don't sell out to big corporations, they're toast. They're toast politically. And now we've got Chris Dodd. He's, you know, retiring from the Senate, but he's the head of the Senate Banking Committee. So what's he going to do? Well, he's going to, you know, we had Elizabeth Warren on this program a week or so ago, and Elizabeth Warren was saying we need to have a consumer protection agency with regard to financial products. Now, we've got a consumer protection agency that makes sure that your toys are not filled with lead, at least you know, some of them. We only are able to inspect a small percentage of the, of the junk that comes in from China, but uh, that, that your toys are not killing your kids. We have a consumer protection agency that makes sure that your swimming pool isn't going to kill you, that your, that your toaster isn't going to blow up. But 
If the if the investment that you buy from your bank blows up, there's no consumer protection agency. She says we need one. Chris Dodd apparently uh, the, the the word is that he's stripping that out of the legislation. Now, why would he do that? You'd think that this guy. I mean, he he was the second most progressive candidate in the Democratic field in the 2008 election behind Dennis Kucinich. He was far more progressive in his policies and his positions than was Barack Obama. Why would he do this? Do you think it's possible that he's going to do what so many of his colleagues have done? And that is when he leaves the Senate, he's going to pick up a, a multi-million dollar a year job working for the, some big bank as a member of the board of directors or as a lobbyist? And that he's positioning himself for that in advance right now by selling you and I, selling the interests of the American people down the tubes? Is our American economic ship sinking and are the rats deserting the ship and, by the way, taking all the food with them? Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, very simply, yes, that's what's going on. The, the Citizens United Supreme Court decision, just the most recent manifestation of that. But here, Chris Dodd saying he's going to kill the Volcker real. Paul Volcker saying, you know, we need protections. We need to, we need to do away with too big to fail. Uh, we need a consumer protection agency. Elizabeth Warren, we need a consumer protection agency. Chris Dodd is taking the position of the Republicans. Why? Well, the Republicans are always represent the big corporations. And now, and, and of course, some of the Democrats do as well. Mary Landrieu, Avin Bayh, you know, the, the conservatives. But now, a, you know, a traditional good progressive, the problem? Well, the problem is that Chris Dodd is not a multimillionaire. Or at least not enough of a multimillionaire in his own mind that he needs to be, as much as he needs to be. He's on his second wife, I think, maybe third. And he's got two young children. He's in his 60s, might even be in his 70s, I'm not sure, but he's, I think he's in his 60s. And, you know, he's got to be looking and saying, you know, if I can go to work for Bank of America for two or three years and make two, three million dollars a year and set aside a couple million bucks in a trust fund for my kids for when I die, I'll leave my, my new young wife and kids in good shape and... And, uh, you know, just like George W. Bush was born with a nice little trust fund, okay, I can do the same for my children. So to hell with America. How broken is this system? How incredibly broken is this system? This, the, the Wall Street Journal, Senate Banking Committee Chairman Christopher Dodd criticized the White House on Tuesday for complicating the effort to overhaul financial market rules. Right. On the other hand, that's the bad news. The good news is that Nancy Pelosi is going to try and do something about this. She's uh, enlisted the aid of Congressman Rip, uh, Chris Van Hollen, the Democrat from Maryland, good guy, good progressive, she, she, uh, to put together a task force to say, what are we going to do about this Supreme Court decision? What are we going to do about, about the fact that the Supreme Court has said that unlimited amounts of money can be spent by big corporations in political campaigns? And by the way, the, most, the way that it can be most invisibly spent, because the Supreme Court has ruled in the past and, and election law basically treats trade associations as standalone entities that don't have to disclose their funding, their nonprofit organizations. So the, the way that the, the companies are going to do this, and it's already happening, 
is they're going to launder their money through the trade associations. Pharma, representing the big pharmaceutical companies, the, the National Association of Manufacturers, representing companies that want to build things in China. The biggest, baddest, and most powerful of all of them, the American Chamber of Commerce, whose president has just come right out and said, you know, yeah, we're going to eat their lunch. We're taking over, buddy. My word's not his, but words to that effect. So Nancy Pelosi thinks that she can do something about this Supreme Court decision. Good luck, Nancy. I wish you well. I seriously do. But I'm telling you, this is really, and, and but the Republicans are looking at this as, oh, this is our golden opportunity. Here, this uh, from today's uh, Wall Street Journal. GOP chases Wall Street donors. Data show fundraisers begin capitalizing on bankers' regret over backing Obama. Republicans are stepping up their campaign to win donations from Wall Street, trying to capitalize on an increasing sense of regret among executives of big financial institutions for backing Democrats in 2008. They're talking about how John Boner of Ohio and, uh, J and uh, uh, but, but, oh, it was just him. He, he had a private luncheon with Jamie Dimon, the chairman and chief executive of J.P. Morgan, by the way, who was a big backer of the Obama presidency at a fancy Capitol Hill restaurant, and somebody was apparently sitting at the table next to him, overheard the conversation. Mr. Boner told Mr. Diamond congressional Republicans had stood up to Mr. Obama's efforts to curb pay and increase regulations. Eric Cantor, the number two Republican in the House behind Mr. Behind Boner, says, I sense a lot of dissatisfaction and a lot of buyer's remorse on Wall Street. In other words, hey guys, the red light is up. We're sitting here in our skivvies. Harvard Law Professor who chairs the Congressional Oversight Panel for TARP, my old job. Elizabeth Warren has come back to join us. Hey, you. Pleasure to have you again. Thank you. Sit right there. All right. Well, we had you on, how long ago was it? About six months. And you are back. I'm back. That's better than a lot of guests do. <laughs> <laughs> so we want to talk about the economy. I think that's probably still what's mostly on people's minds. And I, I was reading today again about how uh, Goldman Sachs had record profits this year, or certainly what they were equal to uh, the like before the big crash. Right. Okay. So my question to an expert is, if the economy is so bad, where do these profits come from? Well, the profits for these guys are coming from business as usual. 
That is, they are still selling, in the case, for example, of the big Wall Street banks, they're still selling a lot of consumer credit cards and mortgages and car loans and that sort of thing that they make big profits off. And then kind of at the other end of the spectrum, Goldman Sachs in particular, they're still trading in all those fancy high-risk instruments that they traded in that brought us to the brink of economic collapse. And that's what we need to reform? Yeah. And that's what you're doing? No, Help. I don't get to do that part. No. What I do is I get to oversee how Treasury spent money to bail out the big financial institutions. The question about whether or not we're going to change the rules is squarely with Congress. Hmm. And that's not going so well. And it always seems that we need the bank's permission to reform. We just can't do something because they're so fragile. You know, they're, they're, it's very... <laughs> It, isn't that the way it strikes you that they're very emotional? They're like a girl with low self-esteem. That's what this economy reminds me of. It's okay now, but if we just say you're ugly, oh, she's going to just... Well, you know, I really thought when I was here and the last time you and I talked that we were on the brink of real financial reform that we were going to change the system, we were going to have a consumer agency to make sure that we kind of rolled back all the crazy abuses and the tricks and the traps. You thought that? I, I really did. Boy, what do you smoke before the show? <laughs> I also thought that we would change the rules on things like derivatives and that we were going to change the rules on resolution authority, what we do with these big banks. We were going to get rid of too big to fail. The problems could not be more obvious. And quite frankly, the solutions are just about that obvious, but we can't seem to get the two together. Right now. It does seem like, the I, I believe that there are smart people in the Obama administration, he picked you, and a number of others, you know. I think they know what to do, but they just can't do it. Because, like I said, the banks are very fragile, they're very emotional, and if they, if they come down on them, the market will drop like 2,000 points in a week. I mean, isn't that why Obama made such nice talk about the banks this week when he compared them to baseball players? You know, I, I don't know why the president said what he said, but I'll, I'll make this part clear. The reason that we aren't changing things right now is the banks have lobbyists in Washington in numbers I've never seen. They're, they're coming not just, you know, once a month, once a week, or even once a day. These guys are coming in two and three and four times a day. They're making phone calls. They've got their position papers. And they just keep slamming in the same direction over and over and over. And people who just want to advocate for American families, people who want some changes, who want to level the playing field, they just don't have that kind of lobbying power. Right. And so what we're really watching here is a David and Goliath story of it's just a monumental proportion. You know, before the crash, uh, I had most of my savings in Lehman Brothers. Ah. I don't have a question. I just want you to hold me. All right, I'm better. But all right. <laughs> um. So, I, I mean, you did pick the one huge financial institution that was not too big to fail. Yeah. <laughs> but it did fail, and it's, it's, it's funny because, you know, I, I, I've been watching a little bit of the Olympics, and uh, 
Lehman Brothers reminds me of that loser who died. You know, the loser, yeah, you know, it was know. tragic. Yeah. But, you know, he died, and it's not like they said, well, we, we got to fix the track. You know, this is ridiculous having people slide down the sh side of a mountain on a sheet of ice at 100 miles an hour. They went right back to doing it, and it seems like that's what our economy is. That's still as risky as it was before. We're still sliding down the mountain on a sheet of ice. That's, that's exactly right. In fact, when this crisis started in October of 2008, Secretary Paulson said the problem is there's too much concentration in the banking industry, meaning a handful of big banks that hold too much. What's happened is the banking industry has gotten more concentrated. He right. said, we're worried about toxic assets on the books of the banks. In fact, we still have toxic assets on the books of the banks. We are worried about the financial products that are sold to consumers, the credit cards, the mortgages that are sold on a kind of tricks and traps basis. And that still happens every single day. Credit cards alone cost American families last year $120 billion in penalty fees, fees, interest. Right, that's not the stuff they bought. That's just what... That's the interest. Right. That's right. 50 million but, but American families can't okay, pay off those But wasn't there a bill that was passed last year? Yes. A credit card bill? Yes. When does that go into effect? So it goes into effect Monday. Monday? Monday. And that's why you're here. <laughs> I knew there was something immediate we wanted to there talk to you about. There we go. Right. So it goes into effect yeah. Monday. And look, what it did is it outlawed basically 10 bad practices. The problem with the approach, and I'm glad they outlawed it. Look, they were really like lousy, what? terrible practices. Things like double cycle billing, you don't want to know. Uh, universal default. Certain things you weren't going to be able to do. Raising interest rates on what are called hair triggers. You're one hour late. They stopped those. But what happened is it's like putting fence posts on an open prairie. You know, you've got 10 of them now. And if you smack straight into one, you really will get hurt. But if you want to hire just one lawyer, much less an army of lawyers, it just kind of could run a little to the left of it or a little to the right of it. And it's business as so usual. So as Monday, as of Monday, will people find their life different as far as credit card goes? Or? Well, there will be some differences, but as the Center for Responsible Lending now says, they've done an analysis of what's gone on, and they said of the 10 that have been outlawed, the credit card companies have already figured out eight new devices for getting around them. And look, this is the whole point that I've been pushing for a consumer agency. Sucks. They move The fast. whole country just sucks. <laughs> Thank you for holding me. Elizabeth Warren, everybody. The whole day through. And just an old sweet song keeps Georgia on my mind. Georgia, Georgia, a song of you comes sweet and clear as moonlight through the pines. Professor at Harvard Law School, also the chairwoman of the Congressional Oversight Panel on TARP. Please welcome back to the program, Elizabeth Warren. Hello, 
to see you again. Thank you. How are you? Uh, when you were here last, eight months ago, and you gave the most cogent uh, description of uh, how we had gotten up to this situation uh, from revolutionary times up to the 1980s, right. uh, our banking system. Uh, but you, you stopped at the 80s. Right. So I was wondering if, if tonight you could take us from the 80s to now. Okay, I can do that. Do we need a brief recap of revolutionary times? <laughs> yeah, or? so we had a big boom and bust was the way the world worked. Boom and bust. That's right. About every 10 years or so, we hit the Great Depression. We put in some new rules mm -hmm. from as we come out of the Great Depression until basically about the 1980s. Those rules gave us a lot of security and a lot of prosperity, and we had basically no financial meltdowns in that period of time. Right. We had recessions, but, but, but they right, were but no financial so, meltdowns. So now we're at 1980. Right. A watershed year, what happened? Well, up to this time, we basically have rules that govern mortgages and credit cards and, you know, all kinds of consumer lending. And the big financial institutions, the titans of Wall Street, turn around and they say, you know, we've got these regulators and they're not very big and they're not very well paid. If we can just find a way to kind of wrap our arms around them, capture them. Uh, capture them, in your opinion, hug them. In their opinion. Fair enough. All right. Uh, but the point is, take them off the beat. Take the cops off the beat. The guys who are supposed to be watching us. We take them off the beat. We could actually change our profit model. And so what they did is they said, we got the cops off the beat. How did they, they accomplish that? How did they get them off the beat? Was it a kickback in a, a typical? No, no. No, part of it is that they're scattered. They're in seven different federal agencies. They weakened them. They weakened them. That's exactly right. And they got them going in a lot of different directions. They're in seven different agencies right now, looking in seven different directions. None of those agencies have as their principal focus consumers, families, customers. Their principal focus are banks or monetary funds or other, other kinds of things. And so they get the regulators tame, take the cops off the beat, and then they change what the products are that they sell. So they start selling ever more dangerous mortgages, ever more dangerous credit cards, even more dangerous car loans, more and more. Now, what happens is they take those, those promises to pay from all these American families. Those things are really profitable. And they slice them and dice them and repackage them and sell them and sell them some more and do some packaging. And it produces three results. The first one is profits that go through the roof. I like how you looked at God when you said that. That's right. <laughs> the second, because it's even better, is bonuses that go past the roof and on out into the ionosphere. And the third is risk that goes up into the stratosphere. And so as soon as all that risk that's been built into the system starts to come home, somebody's got to pay and the market takes just that little tiny downturn, those same CEOs on Wall Street basically turn around to the American people and say, whoa, there's, there's a real problem here and you better bail us out or we're all going to die. And so we did. That was TARP. And now we're about to write the last chapter in this narrative. And the question is, are we going to have a boom and bust world? Is it going to be that the CEOs on Wall Street write all the rules? Or are we going to say, no, enough of that? What we're really going to have is we're really going to have going forward a set of rules that make it safe to buy a mortgage, safe to take out a credit card. You can tell what it costs. Or at least make the risk manageable. Make uh, it's manageable. never going to be com never completely Never going to get safe. rid of it. Here's, describing it like that actually seems simple. Why is it then, you came here eight months ago with a pretty coherent plan of uh, these types of, of regulations. 
it seems like there has been very little movement towards that. Is that because Congress is fearful of these guys? Is it because they think it's the wrong move for the country? Is it that they don't understand it? What, what is the holdup here if it's simply a matter of returning a certain rational sense of not too big to fail, uh, credit card contracts that aren't 20 pages long and purposely uh, obtuse? If, if it's that simple, why, why are we having so much trouble here? Well, these guys really do get it. I mean, let's, let's not kid anyone. Um, who they, gets it? The, the, the CEOs on Wall Street, the bankers, the guys who are in power and the guys who make money from this system. They get it and they work best behind closed doors in Washington. You know, they go out, they have nice smiley faces, and then they go back and they, they, they have their have lobby. beautiful faces. They, I've seen teeth. some of their faces. <laughs> That's right. But then they go back and they say, in effect, uh, behind the closed doors, we're pumping lots of money in here, and nothing, nothing will change. You know, I want to turn to these guys sometimes, and I want to say, what part of we bailed you out do you not get? These are people who would not have their jobs because they would not have their companies. But they don't believe, they still don't believe that they've done anything wrong. They, they said this is, uh, as Jamie Dimon testified to, hey man, it's a five, every five to seven years you have one of these things. He said, I guess our problem was we never realized housing prices might come down because housing prices, as you know, defy all laws of thermodynamics. That's, that's uh, <laughs> but, but, but are they being disingenuous? Of course they're being disingenuous. What? <laughs> You're saying they know better and they bring, again, purposely obtuse in front of Congress, in front of the American people, and so this is kabuki theater. And the Congress people know what's going on too. So they play out the little drama, then they all go backstage and write rules that in no way change the game. Is that the scenario? That's the idea, because they like the rules we have, the rules that brought us to this crisis, the rules that will produce, just as Jamie Dimon, the head of J.P. Morgan, says, boom and bust every five to seven years, they make money What pressure can be applied from a personal standpoint rather than just because if it's behind closed doors and there's giant lobbyists working Congress people, what pressure, if any, can be applied? We are, it feels like a, a losing battle. No, it is not a losing battle. I, I didn't, did I say losing? I didn't mean that. Okay. <laughs> I mean, this really is the moment. The chips are all on the table here. We are going to write what the American economy looks like for 50 years going forward. And right now, the CEOs have any real change bottled up in the Senate. God bless Barney Frank, he got it through the House. It's there in the Senate. The President says, I'll sign it if you'll get out some change. It's there in the Senate. If you have never written a senator before. Mm -hmm. Oh, I've, I've written some senators before. <laughs> now is the time, though. <laughs> <laughs> hello, hello, Mary Landrieu. <laughs> uh, well, if it's up to the Senate, I think it's going to be difficult now that uh, the Democrats have lost the majority. You know, they only have 59. I don't see how it's going to get done. Uh, but, but from from your mouth to God's ears, and and uh, uh, I can tell it just it, it grips every fiber of you uh, as you as you push for this, and, and hopefully because it seems simple and it seems common sense and. Lord knows they'll find a way to make it not so. It, it is simple. This is America's middle class. We've hacked at it and chipped at it and pulled on it for 30 years now. And now there's no more to do. Either we fix this problem going forward or the game really is over. When you say it like that, when you look at me like that, I know your husband's backstage. I still want to make out with you. <laughs> Elizabeth Warren! I only can't.
You can now support this podcast as easily as by shopping online. The next time you need to make a purchase of just about anything, simply visit bestoftheleft.com and use our amazon.com search box to find what you're looking for. The search box is located right on the side of the website. You can't miss it. When you make your purchase, we get a little commission. It's just another effortless, completely free way for you to help keep the show going strong. Thanks for your support. Speaking of teeing off on people, tee off on Fareed Zakaria because this shit was out of hand. Are we gonna, I don't know if you were emphasizing the word tee off because you want it to be like, uh, sort of like your, your, your weekly rant. Like that sounds like kind of like a cable news, like watch Tammy tee off who, who peeved her this week. That Was that my intention? No. Okay. Um, I didn't think it was. You're better than that. Thank you. You're welcome. But uh, Fareed Zakaria was sort of silly today, Jamie, on his show, GPS. Well, Fareed Zakaria, I feel like you should explain a little bit. He sort of has that Brian Williams, John McCain daily show problem, where a lot of people assume that he is like this great lefty because he makes Jon Stewart laugh on The Daily Show. And I feel like so many of these people who have radical right-wing policies, if they go on The Daily Show or they go on Keith Olbermann or any of those shows and they really just say something just non-crazy. So they say something like gay people should be married. Or, or they get a Bush joke in there. Yeah, that, that, I was just going to say that. That's literally what it is, is. You just have to get one George Bush joke. Yeah, which and, is what Free does every time he's on The Daily Show. Right. And yeah. you're like, oh my god, the left. And then you read about some of their neoliberal economic policies and they're fucking crazy yeah and Farid likes to depict himself as the son of a a poor man um, a poor immigrant and he came over here and he is a self-made man and he um he kind of presents himself as spokesman for the poor which is really funny because he's a total right-wing free market pro-capitalist hawk that's not funny that's horrible yeah he's terrible so today He was talking about how it's interesting because in national polls, um, people are very concerned about the deficit, obviously. Okay. But simultaneously, they don't want spending cut on social programs. So no one's really explained to them how those two are linked. Right. And this looks like a conflict of interest. Or as Fareed Zakaria puts it, public schizophrenia. So he's literally depicting the American people as mentally ill, that they don't see that this is a conflict of interest. But what Fareed Zakaria doesn't see is that pollsters really lack nuance when they ask people questions about the deficit. So in other words, they'll ask a question like, do you approve of how President Obama is handling the deficit? Overwhelmingly, people say no, but that doesn't mean that they want him to cut taxes. What they're saying is, I either don't approve of the money being spent on the wars, I don't approve of the tax cuts for the upper 1%, I don't approve of the tax cuts for the banks, for Goldman Sachs, but it's unnuanced because, or it's not nuanced because the pollsters never then ask a follow-up question. So that question's actually fragmented. Do you believe in tax cuts? Do you believe in tax hikes? For whom? For right. what? You know, it's a complex question, but they never delve deeper than that. So then for Zakaria, being the asshole he is, goes on TV and accuses the American people of being somehow responsible for this. So this is what he actually said. 
in his little opening to his show. He said, the lesson of the polls in the recent elections is that politicians will succeed if they pander to this public schizophrenia. So the next time you accuse Washington of being irresponsible, save some of that blame for yourself and your friends. Wow. Yeah. I'm, so, glad, I'm glad for Reed. I'm glad somebody fine. in the mainstream media finally blamed us. We've really been skating by, I feel. We have. I mean, really, when you watch 24-hour news, I'm like, they're giving it to politicians, and they're handing it to lobbyists. In the hot seat. Oh, in the hot seat. And uh, But really, the public, I mean, with our... With our 40,000 people a year that die because they don't have insurance and our yeah. 10% unemployment. We, we, we're we just, I mean, I think we brought that all on ourselves. And to be fair, Lloyd Blankfein, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, has really sacrificed a lot this yeah. year, Jamie. Oh, I feel... With his $9 million bonus. Oh, I feel so bad counting change so I can pay for a Metro card and take the subway. I'm such an idiot. I, oh, I wish Ronald Reagan was alive. Me too, buddy. He could have told us what to do. Me too. We miss you, Gib. We miss you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Let me start off by saying a huge thank you to everyone who's uh, really rallied to vote over at Podcast Alley, gotten the show back up into the top 10 this month and last month have really just made me realize that the competition over there has just flat out gotten stiffer than it used to be. Uh, As I'm talking, we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 225 votes for the month, which is great by by all standards. Um, And six months ago, that would have had us in maybe the top five. These days, we're barely hanging on in uh, at at the number 10 spot. So it turns out that more podcasts are, are trying to get in there, trying to get to the top 10 to, to get that publicity from being on the homepage. And so it just takes a little bit more work uh, from, from all of you guys uh, if we're, if we're going to stick in there and, and keep the show in that top 10 list. So huge thanks to everyone who's voted. If you haven't yet, please consider going over. Uh, there's, a, there's a really simple link at uh, bestoftheleft.com to vote at Podcast Alley. And it would be great if you just want to make the habit do it every month uh you know the more people who who just get in the habit of doing it every month the easier it'll be to stay in that top 10 and uh, and keep new people finding the show all the time in addition if you're interested you can actually get a uh, a notification email every month just for the the podcast alley vote just at the beginning of the month really simple get a reminder email and uh and click through and and vote so that's uh, that's an option for you that you can sign up for through our uh, newsletter system. I have what I think is a really hugely exciting announcement today, uh, which is that I updated. Wait, wait for it. I updated my about me page, and just to give give you a little context for that, uh, when I say updated, I basically mean created. I didn't really have one before. I I replaced the contact page with uh, with an about me page and uh, wrote a little story a little backstory about myself and about the show put up a little picture so you can see exactly how different I look than you imagine and uh, and fun things like that um, years ago when, when I when I launched the original show I had an original website I had an about me page and then at some point when we upgraded the site 
the uh, the about me page went by the wayside and i can just imagine the number of people who are out there thinking yeah you know i i love being uh, kept informed on all the politics and you know i want to know if if the healthcare system is going to change so that i know if i'm going to be covered when i lose my job and uh you know is the is the economy going to crash again do i need to be prepared to to you know go out and be have my resume updated so that uh you know when my company goes under i can uh you know i can find a new job right away um you know and and all that's great but what i really want to know is uh is how this dude got this show started in the first place I, I know you're out there. I know that's what you're thinking. So, of course, you know, I'm just here to serve. And uh, and so I, I did it. And, you know, for, for a little bonus, uh, a little bonus feature, the little article I wrote um, with the backstory and everything was written at about 2 a.m. So it might be particularly interesting. As of this moment in the light of day, I haven't reread it yet. So it could be full of all kinds of crazy stuff. And now, of course, because the members are what make this show possible, all the ones who have signed up and, and everyone out there who is planning on it. All of you out there who support the show or, or plan to are the ones who have given me the confidence to make this podcast my full-time gig and uh, and start putting out 10 episodes a month. So I, I certainly hope that I'm living up to my end of the bargain and am putting out a show that's, that's worthy of, of your support. So today I just want to thank a couple of recent members. Barbara B. signed up uh, just on February 3rd. She signed up for a monthly membership and went above the, the minimum membership level, which is excellent. Uh, awesome. Thank you, Barbara. And then Phil P. signed up even more recently, another Fe- February member, February 10th, and signed up for a full year in advance um, and, and also went above and beyond. So you know, huge thanks to a couple of awesome members, uh, awesome brand new members, and I just can't say enough how gratifying it is. You know, every every single new member that signs up or or donation that comes in, just knowing that people are out there believing in what I do enough that they want to uh, help me keep doing it by by donating to the show uh, is is hugely hugely gratifying. And then on top of that, those who sign up for a year in advance, I mean, they they get a little discount on on their membership for sign up for a year. But uh, but it's great to know that that people know they love it enough that, that they uh, they want to stick with it for a long time. So that'll do it for today. Uh, of course, besides memberships and donations, there are lots of ways to support the show that cost absolutely no money whatsoever. Check out all those things you can do in the support box at bestoftheleft.com. While you're there, you can uh, find the links to follow the show between episodes on Twitter or Facebook, whatever you prefer. Of course, there's also the link to the About Me page. I know you're not going to want to miss that. I-, I worked very hard on it. And then links to all of the sources and the music used in this episode and all the episodes is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from right in the middle of one of the flyover states in the middle of the country where all of the real Americans are hiding, not like out on the coasts. My name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month. Thanks entirely to the support of members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. <laughs>